lifts get a lot of attention. They're definitely the cool capital expenditure. And if we all had our druthers, we'd have brand new high-speed six-packs everywhere, of course. We're not going to engage in the CapEx arms race. You know, quite frankly, you know, as I said, a lot of our resorts have come to us as distressed properties. So a lot of what we're doing is sort of these behind-the-scenes investments, improving the snowmaking systems, fixing the pipeline, buying new snowcats, and fixing all those things that may not have been dealt with for many years. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, talking to one of the best little multi-mountain companies in the ski business today. First, to get the most out of this podcast, I'm going to send you over to stormskiing.com and ask you to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There is an article that accompanies this podcast and every Storm Skiing podcast that is filled with maps, statistics, and additional background and context that will make your listening experience much richer. The podcast, by the way, is just a small part of the storm. I am breaking down the world of lift serve skiing with at least 100 articles every single year delivered straight to your inbox. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Skiing Newsletter instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, before we get moving, a quick word from my partner. Today's episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Ski season is in full swing, which means more riders, and more riders means more lift maintenance issues. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to succeed. Well, this is your solution. CORE's online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry and includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beeve.es backslash storm so they know we sent you. That's B-E-A-V dot E-S backslash storm. Episode 119, Pacific Group Resorts Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer Christian Knapp. You may not have known who they were six months ago, but if you follow the ski business at all, you know who Pacific Group Resorts is now. Pacific Group Resorts has been in skiing since it rescued what had been the long dysfunctional Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire in 2007 and completely turned that place around. Over the next dozen years, the Utah-based company would add Wisp, Wintergreen, Powderhorn, and the remote Mount Washington Alpine to its portfolio. But last year, the company that often goes by the shorthand of PGRI entered the skiing big leagues when it bid on and won what is arguably New England's top ski area, Jay Peak. It cost them $76 million and a big bidding war, but the company got everyone's attention along with one hell of a ski resort. But that's old news. Now the PGRI has Jay, everyone's asking, what are you going to do with it? 
Will Jay stay on the Indy Pass? If so, are your other mountains jumping on as well? If not, where is it going? Icon Pass? Somewhere else? Nowhere? Do you have cash left over after that splurge to bring the joint up to speed after six years of receivership? And while you're at it, how about that West End double at Powderhorn or lift one at Wisp? And what, if anything, will PGRI buy next? And when? I had a lot of questions, and my guest today took every one of them. Lots to get to here, so let's do it. My guest today is the Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer for Pacific Group Resorts. Pacific Group Resorts owns and or operates six ski areas in the United States and Canada. Mount Washington Alpine in British Columbia, Powderhorn in Colorado, Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire, Wintergreen, Virginia, Wisp, Maryland, and as of late 2022, Jay Peak, Vermont. Prior to joining Pacific Group Resorts in 2021, he spent nearly a decade as Chief Marketing Officer of Aspen Skiing Company, where he founded the Mountain Collective Pass in 2012. He also spent 13 years with Vail Resorts, working as a brand and marketing manager at Breckenridge, Vail Mountain, Beaver Creek, and Keystone. He has served on the boards of Colorado Tourism, Snowmass Tourism, and SnowCountry.org. Christian Knapp is my guest. Christian, so glad we can make this happen. Welcome to the storm. How are you doing today? Stuart, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and we appreciate everything you do for the industry. Things here in Park City are phenomenal. Uh, Utah is having an all-time winter. Uh, we had another eight inches last night on top of 23-inch uh, 24-hour report last week, and we are in the Utah snow globe. It's been unbelievable. Unreal. I, I was pretty happy just to get my six inches at Sunday River over the weekend with the way the winter's gone in the east, which I don't have to tell. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but uh, that sounds pretty good right about now. So how is the ski season going so far for Pacific Group Resorts across the continent? Well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's been a bit of a mixed bag across the country, you know, and if, if all of our resorts were in Utah or Colorado or California, we'd be looking pretty strong. But uh, unfortunately, we only have one resort in, in Western Colorado that has been a beneficiary of this incredible uh, snow year, very consistent snow from the early days. Uh, we allowed, allowed us to open Powderhorn the earliest we've ever opened it. And it's been great there. Can't quite say the same about our other resorts. Um, as well documented, the, the East Coast has had its challenges. There was no snow in the beginning and minimal snowmaking temps. The Mid-Atlantic has really struggled. It's been a very challenging year, especially at the further south you go. A bit of a recovery for sure this past month or so, particularly at Ragged and Jay Peak up in Vermont. We've seen some good natural snow and some good business volumes. The Mid-Atlantic's been challenging. And our resort up in Vancouver Island, British Columbia, has also had kind of a hit or miss year on the snow front. But all told, you know, I mean, everybody's been super resilient. We have incredible operators and they are so good at what they do in putting out a product, using everything they possibly can to put something out for the customer. And, and financially wise, uh, we're feeling like we're in a pretty good spot. So I was impressed in the Mid-Atlantic. You had some really early openings at particularly at Wisp opened in November, which is great for Scary in Maryland. Wintergreen also got a pretty early start, closed for the season yesterday not sure if that's your earliest ever close, but talk a little bit about the challenges facing Wintergreen this season and ultimately why you had to make the tough decision to close in February. 
Yeah, no, it's absolutely not in our roadmap or operating plan. We did everything possible to make snow at every possible moment uh, you could imagine. But it, it just isn't enough, you know, when you're faced with like 60, 70 degree temperatures throughout the winter and on and off. It's been a very challenging year to be an operator in those kind of southern mid-Atlantic resorts. And uh, unfortunately, we did have to make the call. We just could not salvage the runs together anymore there and uh, couldn't put out a skiing product that was good for the customer. So we did make the unfortunate and tough decision to close yesterday for the season there. Is it too early to say, or when you have a season like this, does the team put their heads together and say, okay, we had some bad luck. Mother Nature wasn't cooperating, but here's what we can do next season to try to ensure a longer season. Snowmaking investment has been paramount for our company. It absolutely is critical, and any resort operator uh, knows this on the East Coast. You know, continual investment in the snowmaking system, upgrading pipeline, upgrading hydrants, upgrading the actual guns, fan guns and stick guns, whatever you've got. Automation there is all paramount to putting out a product so that you can absolutely maximize your snowmaking opportunities because you, this day and age, you have to be able to take advantage of every opportunity. And obviously water is, uh, plays a big part as well. And fortunately at our resorts in the mid-Atlantic, we have great amounts of water. So that's not the issue. It's really getting those temps. So looking at your portfolio, you mentioned Powderhorn is having an amazing year, like much of the West in Colorado. How important or how crucial is this coast-to-coast portfolio in a year like this where Wintergreen had a bad end to the season, but Powderhorn's having a great season, and you can use one resort maybe to pick up another. And I'm not sure how revenue works within your company. You don't have to get into that necessarily. But how important is it to have this balanced portfolio? How much of an advantage of it is that in a year like this where some resorts are just having a really tough time? It's it's extremely important. It's core to our philosophy and our strategy as a company. You know, we've added resorts kind of all over the map, if you will. Um, you know, having one in Colorado and, and the reliability of the Colorado snowpack is great. Mount Washington on Vancouver Island traditionally gets one of the deepest snowpacks in North America. This year has been a little a little hit or miss, but overall, you know, we're pleased. And you could say we're probably, you know, overexposed in the Mid-Atlantic with two of our properties being there. But the guys and the operators there are doing an incredible job of putting out a product. Like you've mentioned before, you know, WISP got open for Thanksgiving this year, one of the earliest openings in many, many years. And just because we closed Wintergreen yesterday doesn't mean we didn't have a financially successful year there. You know, the customers did come. They, you know, it was obviously wasn't the product they were hoping for a lot of the time, but we still put out great quality trails and slopes and people had fun and, and took advantage of everything that the mountains have to offer. And now with Jay Peak being so far north in Vermont, traditionally they get pretty cold temperatures up there. That certainly helps in being in a strong ski market like Vermont is important to us. And so so I think it's been a very critical strategy for us to spread ourselves out to make sure we're not clustered in too much in one part of the country. And you said something interesting there with Wintergreen in that just because you closed early doesn't mean it wasn't a financially successful season. Wintergreen is a really interesting resort in that it has this club structure. But what, what, what I want to focus on for the moment is I, I saw a really interesting statistic from the National Ski Areas Association and Kelly Pollock, their, their CEO, was giving a presentation at the Skiers of New York and Pennsylvania event up at Hunter Mountain last fall. And she pulled up this slide that showed the per guest average revenue for each region. 
And I was really surprised to see that the best, the, the most financially successful region, as far as that metric goes in the country, is the Mid-Atlantic. And I think that probably goes counter to what most folks in this podcast are listening to, because to the extent that they think about that region at all, unless they live there, it's probably as an afterthought. And a lot of folks are not even aware that skiing exists in the Mid-Atlantic, Virginia and in North Carolina and Maryland. So why is that, Christian? Why are these Mid-Atlantic resorts, which face a lot of natural struggles, why are they such good businesses when it comes to per skier visit yield? That's that's an interesting stat, and it's it's not one I've heard, but I, I'm not surprised by it. I think that the metropolitan populations that access these resorts tend to be pretty wealthy enclaves. You know, you know, Washington D.C. metro is our primary market for both Wintergreen and Wisp, and in that area, there's 10 million people within a three-hour drive of those two resorts, and there's a lot of of wealth concentration in Bethesda and some of those areas outside of Washington D.C. and Fairfax County. And, you know, those folks love to ski too, and they can't always get on a plane and go out west or, or drive, you know, way up north. And there's a lot of second homeowners around our resorts, both at Wintergreen and at Wisp. And those folks come on the mountain and they tend, you know, and they spend like you would expect them to and enjoy the experience. And it's, you know, it's not the experience that you're accustomed to if you're used to skiing in far northeast or out west, but it's a fun day on the mountain and it's a way to get outside and recreate and enjoy being out part of the outdoor experience and getting on slope. So we'll talk a little bit more about the specific resorts and what makes them unique in a little bit here, Christian, but I want to get in first to your background because you've really been in all different sorts of, of pieces of this industry. First of all, how did you get into this industry? Where did you grow up? Did you grow up skiing? What was your first job in skiing? I have been around the industry my whole life and it's something I take a lot of pride in. And I grew up in Burlington, Vermont area, just south of there. My father was in the ski industry, Hugh Knapp. He had a company called Knapp Associates, and he was actually a broker of skier equipment for my whole childhood. And he worked with a lot of small resorts, buy, helping them buy and sell lifts, snowcats, snowmaking systems. And so, you know, he traveled around a lot of the resorts and and uh, we went to NSAA shows on vacations, if you will. Um, yeah. And you know, so it was part of who I was, as, you know, as around the industry growing up. I was in Vermont, so I started skiing when I was young at Cochran's on the rope toe there, and then kind of graduated to Bolton Valley and through high school. And then in uh, college, we had the Big Pass then back in the 90s, and it was something, it was super cheap, and you could go to Sugarbush and Stowe, unlimited, unrestricted as a student. And so I went to University of Vermont and met a core group of guys that, you know, that were snowboarders and it became really part of who I was and my DNA and has always been my passion in life. I switched to snowboarding around 1990 and have never looked back and it's kind of been part of my identity. And so when college finished, looked at one of my best friends, Scott Zergabel, and, you know, we weren't ready to move to the city and just kind of do a financial job or anything like that. That wasn't me or him. And we jumped in my Subaru Outback and, and did a one-way trip out west and been out west ever since and landed out Mount Bachelor in Bend, Oregon for my first job in the industry, working at the resort there and events and, and marketing, starting kind of looking at marketing a bit. And that was sort of my first foray in the industry. And, and kind of my mantra from there has just been like follow my passion and turn it into a career. So you're working at Bachelor and you arrive in the 90s. What was Mount Bachelor like then? And what was it like working there? And kind of what drew you in and, and made you want to stick around? 
you know, Bachelor was not on the radar at that point. It was definitely, you know, a lot of the, the people that left college that we were going to school with, you know, went to the logical places. They went to Colorado. They went to Lake Tahoe, maybe Utah, Salt Lake. So Bachelor wasn't on the radar, but I had gotten there on a trip a couple of years previous. So I, I was aware of it. And uh, we, we wanted to go against the grain and ended up landing there. And, you know, it offered a pretty, at the time, Bend was incredibly affordable. It was growing very rapidly. It was a really cool kind of outpost in central Oregon. And if you haven't been there, it's, you know, it's about a town is about a 30 minute drive up to the mountain. And there's this you know, town is kind of bustling and it, there's no snow. And then you go up and there's 200 inch snow base up top. And wow. the mountain was built out pretty big. I mean, it was already at that point in time, probably like 3,500 acres. They had a really nice modern lift system. It's a, it's a cylinder uh, like a like a cone, it's a volcano, and it's you can almost ride at 360. Great tree riding, definitely a really good snowboard culture there, and still to this day. And it was just it was a great place to kind of spend my first couple of years and sort of you know get the Northwest vibe and and understand what that was all about. So sounds like you were having a good time there, and it was a great situation. So what pulled you away from Bend and Bachelor, and where did you go next? Yeah, you know, Ben was awesome, but at the same time, that's not the epicenter of the ski industry. Um, still isn't probably today. It's definitely kind of on its own. It's also very hard to travel in and out of there back then, especially and being my family being back in Vermont, it was a trek to get home. But um, so I, I looked or started looking around and I looked at a couple opportunities, uh, one in SoCal and then one in Colorado and ultimately landed the one in, in Colorado in Breckenridge. And it was kind of taking what I'd learned at Mount Bachelor. I'd been working on U.S. Grand Prix and doing terrain park events and helping doing a lot of event management and coordination and some marketing efforts. And they were looking for somebody to do that kind of event coordinator at Breckenridge. And obviously Breckenridge was a much bigger resort. Um, it was part of Vail Resorts. Colorado uh, still, to, you know, to this day is the epicenter of, of skiing in the country. And so it felt like the right move, the right opportunity. It was also a year-round position. My position at Bachelor had been seasonal, uh, which a lot of positions are when you're getting going. And so it was opportunity to make a move to a big, big-time resort in a cool town and uh, working for Bale Resorts. So it was really interesting historical timing. You arrived at Breck in 1998. Vail, for listeners who may not be familiar with the exact history, purchased the resort in 1997 along with Keystone. What was Breckenridge like in those days, Christian, both the town and the ski area? Breckenridge was amazing then. It was definitely in its heyday. You know, there was this incredible energy there. It was very youthful. You know, they've been hosting freestyle events for a long time, but those they sunsetted those and moved towards snowboarding. And so we were hosting some of the coolest events at the time. You know, the Vans Triple Crown uh, we held there. Some of the Grand Prix early on that were Olympic quali- some of the first Olympic qualifiers we hosted a couple installments of the Super Park with Snowboarder Magazine. And uh, the park itself at Brack was absolutely legendary. It's called the Freeway, helped with some of that branding and stuff. And this was the early days of marketing at Ski Resorts. I mean, we were, the websites were just getting going. You know, we were building out the first websites and you know, it was very non-digital at that point. There was no social media, lots of, you know, collateral still and traditional marketing efforts. And had a lot of fun. I learned a ton there. I got to work for a woman named Lucy Kay, who's just been an incredible mentor for me. She's 
just one of the great marketer minds in our industry and has been. She still works in Breckenridge as the head of the chamber there. Anyway, so it was it was a great time. And of course, it was, you know, it was a great place to be in my 20s. There was lots of parties, really fun uh, nightlife scene there, places like Cecilia's and actually even met my wife there, oh, you nice. know, at a, you know, at a party at the Breckenridge barbecue for those who uh, were around during that time, there was a Thursday night DJ party um, that a lot of us would go to. And so it was a really cool time. And Vail was, Vail was still pretty in its infancy then, you know, it was, it had, like you said, it had just gone public a couple of years prior and, you know, and it was, it was only just the four Colorado resorts at the time. And so, and the, it was very decentralized then it was, you know, the resort teams were very autonomous then. And, uh, and we had a lot of leeway to do some really cool stuff at Breckenridge. So as I mentioned in the intro, you worked at Vail for 13 years. And for those keeping score, the Epic Pass came along in 2008 and you were there till 2011. So take us through your journey at Vail, Christian. And what was it like? What was the energy like being there as this company grew and became kind of more of a version of the Vail Resorts that we all know and think of today when we hear the name Vail? It's a great question, you know, because, yeah, like I said, when I arrived in Breckenridge, I was very junior at that point, obviously. And, um, you know, and just sort of getting going and just starting to understand what what is a ski resort conglomerate like. And, at the, and it really was kind of a, a new concept to some degree at that time. And so I ended up spending about five years at Breckenridge, uh, worked my way up to like senior marketing manager. And then an opportunity to go to, over to the Vail Mountain happened. And uh, I took that opportunity. It was a lateral move, but it was an opportunity to work at the flagship resort. And Bill Jensen was over there. And Chris Jarneau was somebody I really wanted to uh, work with. And he's been a great mentor, too, through the years. And and uh, and so I did that for a couple of years. And then an opportunity to go over to Beaver Creek came up to kind of be the brand manager there. And at that point, a guy named uh, Ian Arthur had come online and I reported to him and He's got a long history in the industry. He was a great mentor as well. And was, we'd, he'd come from Frontier Airlines and later went on to IntraWest and a bunch of other stuff in Boyne before he retired recently. And then they gave me an opportunity to go over to Keystone, back to Keystone, back to Summit County and be the senior director there and spend about four years there. And we spent a lot of energy around repositioning Keystone as a family first brand. And, uh, and that has been, has resonated and it's, I'm proud to see that some of those efforts are still in play there and think things like the, the largest snow fort in the world was a concept we came up with and, uh, and they still, they're still doing it. And it's, um, you know, it's cool to see how they've leaned into that kind of family positioning for that brand. That was something that um, we focused on a lot there with Pat Campbell and Blaze Carrick were kind of leading that charge at the time. So you had a good run at Vail and that was a growing company that does promote from within. But in 2011, you moved down the road to Aspen. So how did that opportunity come up, Christian, and what appealed to you about that move? No, I think, you know, there, there had been other opportunities. You know, I'd been in Vail Resorts for about 13 years. I'd taken those kind of laterals and, and upward mobility transfers to continue growing my expertise in the marketing space. Getting experience at multiple resorts was super important to me. You know, and going from luxury at Beaver Creek to kind of youth at Breckenridge to family at Keystone was, a, was an incredible learning opportunity. I did get to spend some time and was part of the epic rollout and kind of the development of that. And that was really cool. And, and to the question earlier, you know, there, there was a huge transition at that time. You know, Adam Aaron had transitioned out and Rob Katz had come in and the corporate headquarters had moved to Broomfield. And there was this kind of energy happening. You could feel it. You know, Heavenly was added. 
Um, so it was kind of the first major acquisition. And, you know, you're starting to see some changes. And, and then right before I left, about six months before I left, Kirsten Lynch joined the company as the CMO. I actually got to report to her. And she's just an incredible marketing mind and brought a lot of data and analytics and succession planning to, to her role there. And uh, the rest is history. She's obviously the CEO now after a, a, an incredible tenure there. So it, it was a very, very good place for me to spend those early, those early years of my career. Uh, learning about kind of how a major corporation like that grows public company. But, you know, sometimes you got to keep looking and look for new opportunities. And Aspen was a place that my wife and I had always said was was a really cool place. We liked visiting there. Didn't think it would ever be possible to live there. It's it's extremely hard to live there. It's so expensive. But lo and behold, I was serving on the Colorado Tourism Board. And one of my colleagues on the board was Jean Mikowski. And she was a long, the long-tenured VP of marketing at Aspen. And one day after one of the board meetings, she pulled me aside and said, hey, you know, I'm going to be stepping down for personal reasons. I think you'd be a great replacement for me. And, um, and then, she, you know, David Perry, who was the chief operating officer at the time at Aspen, uh, reached out and we set up a round of interviews. And ultimately, I got the job. And it was the first opportunity that really felt right. Um, it was the right brand. It was the right place and uh, decided to make the move. So you get there in 2011, take a little time to settle in. Then in 2012, you led the launch of the Mountain Collective, and that was at the time when it debuted, two days each at Alta, Aspen Snowmass, Jackson Hole, and Palisades Tahoe. And, you know, in 2023, we really take for granted that large independent ski areas will voluntarily join these big pass coalitions. And we have Icon Pass, and uh, it's, it's grown fast, and it's just part of ski life now. But take us back here. Why did you launch the Mountain Collective, and how did you do it? How were you able to bring these four very distinct brands together long before we had such a thing as the Altera Mountain Company? It's a great question, and you you nailed it. That it was not an easy task. <laughs> it was no, there was no foregone conclusion that anyone was going to want to join this because there really wasn't a precedent for it. There'd been a couple loose collaborations. Obviously, there was all the. Um, cross, you know, utilization of season passes and uh, reciprocal access kinds of stuff, but nothing formal, nothing, you know, nothing that had a product out there that was actually for sale that would work. It was all just sort of no money exchanged, um, reciprocal access. And so we dabbled in a couple different things and tried and, but this time, by, like you said, by 2012, Epic Pass was starting to get traction. I just come from Epic and Bale Resorts, and I, I saw the writing on the wall, and um, in, in the leadership at Aspen saw the writing on the wall too. That pass, passes in the future weren't going to necessarily be people clustered around the mountains; they were going to be people living in metros like Chicago and Houston and New York, and um, and you know, and and that was starting to happen. And people that were were doing the math and going, you know, what an Epic Pass makes sense for me, even if I'm just doing one or two trips a year, and this is long before they had, you know, 40 plus resorts and same for Icon, 50 resorts now. So the leadership at Aspen, you know, gave me kind of the leeway to do some research. And uh, we conducted a research study, you know, and looked at customers. We actually did that with Whistler Blackham, uh, which was an interesting tidbit that a lot probably don't know. Um, you know, and so we conducted this thing. We kind of reached out to, you know, ticket holders, you know, people that have bought five plus day tickets over time. And were destination skiers that visited more than one resort in a season. And we asked them a bunch of questions about what would a destination pass look like? How many days would they want? What, what resorts would be appealing to them? Uh, what were some of those benefits they'd be looking for? 
And through that process, the research was pretty eye-opening, you know, and it came back, you know, kind of like two days thing came out of that. We decided on the 50% off additional days instead of having a set price point on the additional days that came out of that. We did some pricing analysis in that as to what the market would bear for a product like that. And um, so basically took those findings, put a deck, put pitch deck together. And I went, you know, I went on the road sort of and, and uh, pitched all the resorts you talked about, you know, we pitched Alta, we pitched Snowbird, we pitched Jackson Hole, we pitched Palisades, Tahoe, Squaw Valley at the time, and uh, and a bunch of resorts, including Whistler. And and then in the end, you know, Alta and uh, Palisades were, were on board, right? You know, pretty much at the get-go. They, they saw the writing on the wall. They, they wanted to be partnered up with Aspen. And everybody else said no. Mm. You know, Snowbird said no. Whistler, who had done the research projects, said no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had a couple other things going on. And uh, Stuart Rumpel there, you know, kind of put it on pause for a year. And I was disappointing. But um, but anyways, and then Jackson Hole was sort of on the fence. And so it was kind of the ninth hour. I went back to Chip Carey, who was running marketing there at the time, and said, look, let's do this and let's make it happen. And they, um, Chip and Jerry Bland, bought in and we felt like at that point we had enough traction, enough to have the four resorts to go to market. And we did. And it was successful from day one. We, you know, we had great alignment with those brands. Uh, we had a good sales in year one. And with those good sales and kind of the learnings from year one and how the, how the program would work and the revenue splits and all that kind of stuff, we figured out a lot of that stuff. Year two, we were able to go back to a lot of those original partners and, and most, if not all, signed on year two and the rest is history. So that was 2012. The Icon Pass didn't debut until six years later. Ultimately, it ended up being very similar coalitions of who was on the Mountain Collective and who ultimately ended up being on that first iteration of the Icon Pass. How foundational, how important, Christian, do you think that those relationships that you began working on with all these resorts six years earlier really enabled the Icon Pass? Because by the time it came around, really folks were used to this idea of banding together even as independents to offer one product. So how, how much how much do you think that Mountain Collective contributed to the ability for Icon Pass to even happen? I, I would like to think it was very important. You know, Aspen Skiing Company is the managing partner of Mountain Collective. You know, it is truly a collective. You know, there's no, you know, it's not really an ownership situation. It's, um, you know, it's, it's managed by a board. But Aspen is the managing partner and Aspen is also a major shareholder of Altera. So there was linkage there, but I think you nailed it. Those partnerships, you know, as Mountain Collective grew, we did events every year where we would all gather in New York and we'd gather at one of the resorts and we'd spend time skiing together and spending time getting to know each other. And we found over time that we had, we all had so much in common, right? We're all running really well-run independent resorts and the camaraderie and the shared learning and the best practices that we're able to talk through and, and meet about. And obviously all under the focus of Mountain Collective, but then just those other kind of relationships that were built. And so I think a lot of those learnings, a lot of those partnerships definitely helped enable the scale and the, how fast Icon was able to get going because a lot of those relationships were there. And so I, I would like to think that they used some of the ideas, and, and but I, I think Eric Forsell and, and Matt Bowers, particularly at Altera, have done an incredible job building Icon into what it is today. You know, I think it's important that our industry has a, has a competitor to Epic. For a while there, it felt very um, top-heavy. There was just sort of Epic and everybody else. 
and as much as we'd like to think Mountain Collective was a true competitor to Epic, it was a very small niche product that, you know, appealed to a certain demographic and a certain destination type of traveler, but it didn't have the ability to have the scale of an Epic with full access at so many resorts. And so there really needed to be a, a Pepsi to the Coke or, you know, an Adidas to the Nike. And um, so I think what's happened and how it's evolved has been good for the customer and good for skiers in general. And, but I think Mountain Collective, you know, was definitely a precursor to a lot of this. Yeah, Mountain Collective is definitely a different animal, really a frequency product as opposed to a season pass, which Icon Pass is for so many mountains. Uh, how happy are you, or, or I guess what are your thoughts around the fact that Mountain Collective still exists? And a lot of pundits when Icon Pass came out said, oh, Mountain Collective will go away like the Max Pass went away. But it's still around, and not only is it still around, but it has its largest group of partners ever. So what are your thoughts on Mountain Collective and, and why it's been resilient and just how you feel about that personally being the person who started it? it the Mountain Collective has nine lives, man. Um, <laughs> it's uh, There has been many, many times where, you know, we sat in meetings or rooms or, you know, on calls saying, this, is, this thing's going to be on life support here. You know, I mean, there was you know, Whistler got acquired um, and was pulled off the program. Stowe got acquired and was pulled off the program. And Every time one of those happened, we had to scramble and find new partners that made sense to replace that uh, that resort. And for the most part, we were able to do that. So, you know, so that's that came in. And there was exponential growth every year until Icon came along and Icon was a reset. Icon was there was definitely some some thinking around the table, you know, that it, it would go away. But in the end, not every product is right for every skier and rider and resort operator for that matter. You know, there's some resort operators to this day that are on Mountain Collective, but don't want to be on Icon. You know, and I think there's some optionality. I think they have different customer segments. Mountain Collective, like you said, is more of a frequency card for destination travelers. Icon is a full a full gamut. It's a season pass for a lot of people in their respective markets, as well as a traveler's pass. So, so it does continue to exist. It has been incredibly resilient. And now, you know, it's it's still going today and it seems to be doing quite well. Did you play any role, Christian, in the formation of Altera Mountain Company or the Icon Pass? You know, I wouldn't say I was I was around and part of it. You know, I was in strategic executive committee meetings at Aspen Skiing Company when it was all happening. Um, so by osmosis, I was I was around it and part of it. And certainly when it went when it, the announcement happened, uh, I'll never forget that day. You know, we were just sort of um, sitting in you know in the office early with the team and just sort of trying to answer the questions because at the time the news broke it. It sounded like Aspen was the owner of the whole thing, but we, we weren't and Aspen wasn't included and, and wasn't in part of Altera and still isn't today. So there was kind of that some of those uh, communication challenges that were that had to be um, dealt with initially. Um, so it, it was an exciting time. It was exciting to be part of it. It was certainly a part of those conversations and the development of Icon and, and helping with those relationships and partnerships as well. It was really cool and exciting. But there's a... Uh, you know, Matt Jones, uh, the CFO, uh, he's a good friend and he, he's definitely uh, one of the brainchilds behind this whole thing. And uh, he's, he's been incredible behind the scenes on this whole thing. So you've moved on to a much different world. So let's get into Pacific Group here, Pacific Group Resorts here, Christian. It's a really interesting company. I think that intentionally it's not really a consumer facing brand. So some folks listening may have been surprised when I rattled off that list of the six resorts that the, the group owns, that the company owns at the beginning of this podcast. So tell us about Pacific Group Resorts and tell us about Vern Greco, the CEO, who is a really interesting character with a deep ski industry resume. 
Now, Pacific Group Resorts is definitely under the radar and it has been. And honestly, that was somewhat by design until the JPEAK uh, deal came along and, and it was announced that we were the front runner there and uh, into the auction process. And prior to that, it had been definitely under the radar. It's uh, just been quietly growing, quietly uh, adding resorts through the years and growing organically. Vern Greco, as you mentioned, is the CEO of the company and has been, a, has been the leader behind it. You know, but chooses, PGRI is not a consumer facing brand. There's no intent for it to be. We really want to let the property speak for themselves, you know, that's important to us, you know, and we're focused on organic growth of the of the resorts that we've acquired, finding synergies, and we take kind of a hybrid centralized approach in how we run and operate the resorts. And so that comes, that starts with Vern, Mark Fisher, our CFO, and myself here at the corporate office and a couple other support teams here. And, uh, you know, we really lean on the resorts to stand on their own. And that's been a really important tenant of this company. So let's talk about the resorts and how this whole company came together, because there was nothing inevitable about these six resorts being together. Let's go back to 2007 here, Christian, with Ragged Mountain. So Pacific Group Resorts began as a spinoff of Pacific Group. So I guess tell us about Pacific Group, why they created Pacific Group Resorts, and why they zeroed in in particular on Ragged Mountain, which is a bit of an off the radar mountain in New Hampshire, you know, well known locally, but not something with a national name. So just take us through the beginnings of PGRI. Well, I, you know, I can talk to it, but I certainly wasn't around for it. You know, I've, I've been educated on it. Pacific Group is a real estate development company that has a lot of backstory in skiing and ski development. They've done a lot of vertical builds at major ski places like Mammoth and Whistler. You know, and so there was some synergies there. But really, the acquisition of Ragged was actually part of a much larger contemplated real estate transaction. You know, and all of a sudden, Pacific Group Real Estate Development owned the land and the ski resort of Ragged Mountain, which was, quite frankly, on the verge of bankruptcy at that point, and very much on life support. And the ski area itself needed somebody that had some experience operating a ski resort and was and knew how to run a ski resort and eventually brought in Vern to help um, run that ski resort as a consultant for the first few years. But, um, you know, there's a fine line between real estate and ski operations in this world. And, and there is a bifurcation there that we're careful to, to manage. So as you mentioned, Ragged is a mountain that had a very troubled history in 1968. It was nearly auctioned off by a bank before a, a shareholder came in and bought it. 1974, declared bankruptcy. It was closed for three years in the mid-80s. In 2007, when Pacific Group, came, Pacific Group Resorts came in, the ownership defaulted on a loan. What? Here we are 16 years later. Ragged's doing great. It has a great reputation. All of its regular skiers really seem to like it. What has Pacific Group Resorts done differently that finally made a mountain that opened in the 60s and failed and failed and failed? How did you finally get this thing to work? That's a great question. I think there's there's probably two things that were really critical to getting Ragged to where it is today as a profitable, you know, well-run, uh, well-loved uh, New England, you know, Southern New England uh, skier. And I think the two things that are key is that previously, I think the management was probably too focused on all the distractions, right? Are we going to develop a base area? Are we going to do an expansion? They had a golf course. They were going to do tubing, you know, and all those kind of things that are, are somewhat distractions to ski resort operations. And so refocusing just on core operations 
um, serving that small and loyal market was really, I think, really smart. Snowmaking was expanded. Also, the spear lift was added. So we have a high speed detachable there. So we have a really good lift system. Grooming fleet's been upgraded and expanded over time. And there was a lot of deferred maintenance that had to be fixed. And a lot of times, you know, when you start managing a resort that's on the verge of bankruptcy, that typically means there hasn't been a lot of CapEx in the last five to 10 years. And so a lot of times, even that maintenance stuff capital hasn't been spent. And so it's spending a lot of time getting those systems back up to snuff and getting the, getting, putting the modern improvements and the higher efficiency snowmaking systems in to create a great snow surface. So, you know, and so that was the focus was get back to the basics, focus on the snow surface. And I think Vern will tell you that, you know, Ragged has one of the best snow surfaces of any of our resorts in our portfolio. And they focused on that. The other thing that was really important for the success and turnaround of Ragged was the introduction of the Mission Affordable Pass. And it started there. And we said, you know, how can we stand out? I mean, the, the marketplace is saturated. There's tons of resorts in New England and New Hampshire. And one of the ways to do that was to offer skiing at, a, at an incredibly affordable price point. And so went to market with that and the sales exceeded expectations and have been a core product for Ragged. And we have also ported that product to three of our other resorts as well, um, because it's been such a strong influence on the success of that property. Let's talk about Mission Affordable here for a minute. It's a great product. One of the it gives Ragged one of the most affordable all access season passes in the state of New Hampshire, which is an extremely competitive market. You also have Mission Affordable at Wispin Powderhorn and a version of it at Wintergreen. You do not have it at Mount Washington and and Jay Peak is TBD. With this pass, you can visit some level of visitation at all of your other resorts. How much cross visitation have you seen? between them and, and, and how successful have these been at helping skiers move around and try your other resorts? You know, we've, we've always seen some cross utilization of our resorts, uh, Wisp and Wintergreen in particular, you know, you can drive between those two and three ish hours. They actually are equidistant almost from Washington DC Metro. So, you know, some folks that own our passes uh, in the Washington DC Metro will, will visit both. So we do see some cross utilization there for sure. Ragged, you know, Southern New Hampshire is a bit further afield. And, you know, so we didn't see a ton of use there. And then, you know, occasionally, you know, people show up out West at Powderhorn or Mount Washington up in Vancouver Island, but not a, not a ton of reciprocal um, access going on there. But as you mentioned, you know, Jay Peak was sort of a game changer in terms of, of adding a really desirable property in Northern Vermont, uh, particularly for the, the mission affordable season pass holders at Ragged. But I'll tell you, I spend time in uh, Wisp and Wintergreen and a lot of locals and employees tell me how excited they are to visit Jay Peak this season, had plans, made plans to visit. And a lot of those plans haven't even happened yet. You know, Jay's certainly got a longer ski season uh, and is well known for its uh, going deep into April and into even May. So people are excited about that. We spent a lot of time thinking about what the right amount of access would be. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we were protecting the experience. We weren't going to overwhelm JP with too many visitors from the other resorts. So we we came to the conclusion of a four days of access, but we did put blackouts on that to protect those peak times. And I think it was very well received. Uh, I think the customers were excited. You know, you got to think um, a lot of these people bought their season pass in March for $379 for an unlimited unrestricted pass in most cases. And now all of a sudden they've got four days of free skiing up at Jay Peak. Uh, it was a nice, it was a nice new benefit for them. And, um, and I think we're going to start to see more utilization over time as people understand the opportunity. It was also new, you know, we didn't, we, were, we weren't able to announce the Jay Peak uh, 
access until after the majority of season passes were sold this past year. So, so now we're going to have a year where we can really focus on it and get the message out. So we're recording this for those listening on February 27th, which means that details for 2023 to 24 mission affordable passes are not yet public. What's your early thinking here, Christian? What can you tell us about how those reciprocity offerings, so four days at JPEAK for all of your other pass holders of your other mountains, how are you thinking about this for your 2023 to 24 passes? Do you think it'll be about the same? Do you have some changes in mind? What can you tell us right now? We think we hit the right note with the four days. Uh, I don't think we're going to make a lot of changes there. Um, I think it's too soon, you know, and again, we don't even have a season there about where we're marketing that benefit to the pass holders at the other resorts. So, so that'll be an, a really great go-to-market benefit that we'll be able to talk about this year. You know, and I think so far we're, we're pleased with the, the amount of reciprocal usage across the portfolio and uh, how it was received by the skiing public. So I don't, I don't, anticipate a lot of changes there. You know, and we've also been spending a lot of time with the JP team and learning more about the resort. And we thought about a mission affordable product there, but in the end, I think we're probably going to stick with a different type of a season pass there. You know, it's a different market. We want to respect that market and make careful decisions about this stuff. You know, so that's to be announced soon, but you know, I don't think you're going to see major changes in how JP uh, season passes are structured. So to that point, Christian, you have six resorts, four of them, Wisp, Wintergreen, Ragged, and Powderhorn have offered Mission Affordable. Mount Washington Alpine, as I mentioned, has not. Why has Mount Washington Alpine not had a Mission Affordable pass? And how has that decision informed how you approach Peak? No, you're right. You hit the nail on the head. You know, sometimes a market, you know, we have to look at every market we operate in. And sometimes the market doesn't make sense for a certain product. And we are not a one size fits all approach company. And so we want to make sure that we're honoring and respecting the market that that resort is in. And in the case of Mount Washington, it's a unique resort in that it's really the only ski resort on the island there. And, you know, we also know that there's not a lot of folks using those passes to visit our other resorts just because of geographic disparity. So, so it is sort of a standalone. It's on an island. And we wanted to honor that. And so it didn't make sense to do a mission affordable type product there. And so we continue to do that. And again, we're not a one size fits all company. So another pass product that you have to make a decision on is the Indy Pass. JPEAK has been the top redeemed resort on the Indy Pass since it joined in 2020. And Indy signs one-year contracts with its resort. So we're coming up pretty soon on finding out, will JPEAK stay on the Indy Pass? What is your thinking around JPEAK and the Indy Pass, Christian? And is there a chance we could see Pacific Group's other ski areas join the Indy Pass? You know, everything's on the table. Um because of my background in Mountain Collective and, and some of these other past products, I certainly have a, my eye on Indie Pass and what Doug Fish has been doing. I think it's pretty commendable what Doug's been able to do. And, you know, I think he saw a niche. He, he saw the Mountain Collective model and saw an, some white space there where he could take that to the more independent, smaller resorts across the country and has exponentially grown that pass. And it's amazing to watch what they've been able to achieve over the over time. And as you said, Jay Peak is one of the premier resorts on the pass. And it's been a very important product for Jay, especially coming through the COVID and Canadian border closure. You know, it was a hugely challenging time for Jay Peak because 40, 50% of the business comes from Canada traditionally and that that dried up. And so they had to find another way to drive some new visitors and some incremental, get some trial. And IndyPass was able to help them do that and get through that time. And so we certainly want to honor and respect that. And we're, we're thinking about this very carefully. 
you know, and also, like you said, we're, you know, we're looking at all options for our other resorts as well. You know, we do have a lot of shared synergies. We're seeing really good sales of our own past products, growth and all of that. And, and I think we're starting to create a brand with Mission Affordable and also putting, you know, giving people on those passes more access to more resorts as we scale. But, you know, IndyPass is an important partner for Jay. And, you know, I suspect we'll have an announcement about that very soon. What can you tell us about Mission Affordable as far as the price point? It's gone from two ninety nine to three forty nine to, as you mentioned, three seventy nine. Is three ninety nine what we're going to see next month? Uh, do you think you're going to keep prices the same? What can you tell us about the prices for twenty three twenty four Mission Affordable passes? Yeah, we're not we're not quite ready to announce pricing. That'll happen over the next several weeks. But I think we're going to take a conservative approach to pricing this year. Even though one side you could say there's a lot more expenses. You know, inflation is impacting every resort operator in in the world right now. The cost of goods has gone up. The cost of labor has gone up. You know, we are paying more than we ever have to hire and find good people. And that all impacts the bottom line of a ski resort. So the general reaction, the natural inclination is to raise pricing to cover those expenses. And, you know, and that's the market pressures that we're all facing as a resort, as a company, as an industry. And it's going to be really interesting to see what Icon and what Epic come out at, what other independent resorts do, what Indy does, what Mountain Collective does, you know, but I think, you know, we're going to take a pretty conservative approach this year. We think, you know, the market is still tumultuous. We don't want to hurt our volume too much uh, as well, you know, and we want to continue to offer a really affordable access point uh, for customers. It's really important to us. It's really important to our resorts. You know, our resorts are not big destination, you know, resorts that people are flying into. These are regional resorts that people are driving to and spending the weekend at. And we really pride ourselves on having an affordable price point for them to get into the sport and spend time at these resorts. Okay. So let's go, let's go back to Ragged here. And you you purchased Ragged in 2007, starting around 2012, the mountain cleared trails on Pinnacle Peak. And for several years, about five years on the trail map. It appeared as a future expansion. Uh, last year, you confirmed, however, that that expansion would not happen at Ragged, that it would, quote, did not make financial sense, end quote. So why did Ragged, and, and I appreciate, Christian, that you weren't there back in 2012, but what can you tell us about why Ragged started this project on Pinnacle Peak and ultimately why the ski area abandoned it? It goes back to what we were talking about before, I think. You know, there was a, a refocus on the core operations and making the resort viable, and adding that terrain on Pinnacle Peak, you know, when you start to, you know, the, yes, the trails had been cut. That's only the start of a project like that, though. There was no, you know, you still would have to put in snowmaking pipeline and, and snow guns on that terrain. That's probably like a $2 million plus project. It would need a major lift, you know, in this day and age, you know, we're starting to look at lifts in the tune of $8 million for, a, you know, a nice detachable four or six now, so right off the bat, you're looking at a $10 million plus development, you know, that's not going to add a ton more skier days. And, and also you have this constraint of what we can currently offer in the base lodge there and parking, you know, we're parked out on weekends, you know, and that, that is a huge issue facing all of our resorts in, in the industry, quite frankly, you know, and if you, if you can't park the people spending 10 to $12 million on a new pot of skiing, is great and all, but you've got to have the services to support those and the egress in and out and the base lodge facilities and the parking situation to support that type of expansion. And we're just not there uh, with Ragged at this point in time. doesn't mean it's not possible sometime in the future, uh, but certainly not in the immediate future. 
So for five years, Ragged was the sole mountain in the portfolio. In 2012, PGRI added Wisp, and in 2015, Wintergreen. Tell us about these two resorts, Christian. You talked a bit about the mid-Atlantic market earlier. There's not a lot of ski areas there, but the ones that are, because of that fact, are really precious commodities. They are close to a lot of people who do have disposable income. Talk about why Pacific Group Resorts entered that market and what makes it such a good ski market. Yeah, Wisp and Wintergreen, again, were somewhat opportunistic acquisitions. And I think ultimately, if Pacific Group Resorts was to scale as a company, you really do need to have more than a couple resorts in your portfolio, right? You're not going to get those efficiencies and economies of scale until you scale to five, six, seven, eight resorts. So having those opportunities to acquire. And at this time, they were an auction actually for WISP. And so they were distressed properties. And ultimately, a REIT purchased the properties. And then PGRI became the managing partner of those properties uh, on the operation side and did that uh, successfully for the last few years until we were actually able to buy the land and all the assets uh, from the REIT just last year, actually. So it's an evolution there. We recognize that these resorts do serve a niche in a market um, in the mid-Atlantic area. These are not just ski resorts as well. They have summer activities and golf courses and all kinds of stuff going on beyond the ski product. And like I said, if you have good operators that can know how to make snow and put out a good product, you can be very successful in the mid-Atlantic, even in a year like this. So you move into another very unique market later in 2015 with the purchase of Mount Washington Alpine in British Columbia. And British Columbia is huge, right? You have Powder Highway, you have the coastal resorts like Whistler and Cyprus. Mount Washington is a really, really, really unique property. For those who are not familiar, Christian, tell us about this mountain, where it is, and what skiers find if they make the journey out there. I'll tell you, Stuart, it is a journey. Um, I love <laughs> I, I love going there. It's one of my favorites to travel to. I had never been to Vancouver Island prior to this role. And it's it's one of the special places in the world. You know, it's just got this cool coastal vibe. It's Northwest, it's Canada. You know, you see the ocean from a lot of the areas on the island, but it's also huge. You know, it's probably six, seven hours to drive tip to tail, you know, and wow. you've got the city of Victoria on the southern tip. You know, that's the capital of British Columbia. And there's actually almost, I believe, like 900 to almost a million residents on the island. And Mount Washington is basically the only lift serve resort on the island. And it's a great resort. It's got multiple detachable lifts, 1,500-ish vertical, 1,500 acres you know, and it, it's a great regional resort for the island visitors, you know, and the island folks tend to be outdoorsy, outdoor loving people, and they love to come up and spend time at Mount Washington. It's easy for them versus the other alternative, the ones outside of Vancouver or Whistler or the interior of BC. You know, you got to ride a, a ferry or a seaplane or something to get off the island. It's 125 bucks to take your car across the ferry each way. Wow. You know, so it's not just it's not just an easy let's pop over to Whistler kind of thing. So there's a captive audience, and to that extent, almost all of the visitation is people that live on the island uh, and use it as their regional ski resort. And what's the skiing like, Christian? The trail map looks great. I've not made the journey myself, but the photos I've seen online, the the trail network, it all looks like you'd find something well worth spending a few days at. Tell us about the mountain. Tell us about the skiing. It's a great ski product. It's a really fun mountain. You know, it's got co that kind of coastal heavy snow for sure. It can be weathery, not going to, you know, it's definitely a weathery kind of place, but I get a ton of snow. 
sometimes the deepest snowpack in North America. And so, you know, and that opens up a lot of cool terrain. There's big trees, you know, with moss on them and stuff. And there's this kind of cool vibe. You get above a little bit above tree line and there's a backside that's got some super steep double black diamond terrain. It's got a great terrain park as well. But, you know, again, it's, it's a ski area for the most part. There is some lodging there. We have, there's a couple condo buildings, a bunch of little chalets that are actually just ski and scout only. You have to take a snowmobile to them. And that's kind mm-hmm. of an experience. You know, and we have a, a great Nordic center there and some beautiful park land just adjacent to the resort there. Um, it's gorgeous up there when the when the clouds break. You can see you can see out over the Salish Sea and it's it's fantastic. What is the potential there, Christian, or the potential and the intent to transform that into more of a destination? Is is it do you own the land? Is it in some kind of a a national park? You know, that's that's quite a long ways to go. And it seems as though it's the kind of place that could support a destination base. I don't know, maybe not because you have Whistler right there to compete with it. But, but what, what what is the potential out there, and and what can you do, and what do you want to do? Yeah, I mean, there's some potential for development. You know, there's some parcels that could be developed. Some have been sold off to other real estate developers um, to do as they see fit for that. We certainly would love to see more housing up go on there up there at some point in time. But again, I think back to our managing philosophy as a company, you know, it's really about organic growth and serving the market that is there. You know, I don't believe Mount Washington will ever be a major destination resort. It's just it's just too hard to get to and there's too much competition in British Columbia. You know, when I fly up there, you know, and I'm landing in Vancouver and then transferring out to the island, I'm not seeing a lot of other snowboard bags on the plane with me. Um, okay. you know, the, those <laughs> People are getting off in Vancouver and heading up to Whistler for the most part. Right. All right, let's talk about Powderhorn. PGRI picked this resort up in 2018. Tell us about Powderhorn. It's it's the westernmost ski area in Colorado, so it's a little bit different than what most folks are thinking of when they think of Colorado, but it is a really interesting place. So tell us about Powderhorn and why PGRI bought it. You know, Colorado, going back to kind of our strategic philosophy as a company, you know, having resorts in key strategic ski markets diversified geographically is what we're after. And so Powderhorn fit that bill. Uh, It's in Colorado, very strong ski market, the number one ski state in the country. And so that was great to get a foothold there. You know, it was a resort with a lot of opportunity. You know, it's outside of Grand Junction, Colorado, which isn't a hotbed for skiing, you know, at this point. But it is a growing community. Uh, Grand Junction is really having a moment, actually. And there's a lot of growth happening out in the western slope of Colorado as people get priced out of Denver and are looking for places to retire to or lower cost of living that have great outdoor activities. It's a very unique resort. It's, it's on a, the largest mesa mountain in the world. And so it's got this kind of horizontal aspect um, that's unusual in mountains. There had been some investment there, putting in a high-speed quad to service the majority of, you know, the train. And that was a huge game changer for the resort. And so, you know, so it was a really good opportunity to manage a resort that was on an upward trajectory with some good partners and, and it has proven out uh, and has been an absolute winner for us as a company. So on one side of that resort is serviced, as you said, by that high speed quad. The other side is served by a 1972 Heron Poma double chair. What's your thinking long-term on upgrading that, that West End chairlift at Powderhorn? It's a very high priority. It is a very antiquated lift and it serves some great terrain. It's a big lift, you know, and again, kind of back to our conversation before about ragged, you know, that's another one of those $8 million plus Rubik's cubes, right? It's too big of a lift to too long to probably do a fixed grip, you know, comfortably. So you're looking at the detach and 
that's an expensive lift, you know, so you got to understand how that fits in, how that works with the capital cycles and what's going to make sense for that resort and when. So, you know, those are, those are things we're going to have to figure out over the next few years, but it is one of our top priorities. So every ski conglomerate has a different approach to chairlifts. If you look at Boyne Resorts, they're really aggressively replacing their lift fleet with super technologically advanced lifts at a really fast pace. Another example would be Midwest Family Ski Resorts, which is Granite Peak, Lutzen, and Snow River, who's announced two new high-speed six-packs in the last couple of years. Pacific Group, on the other hand, you've put in one new lift, that Spear Mountain Quad that you mentioned at Ragged in the last 16 years. So just talk about the company's thinking around chairlifts in general and why their replacement rate has been lower than other companies of similar size. Yeah, the chairlift you mentioned, you know, that was sort of the first lift that made it to the top priority list, honestly. Lifts get a lot of attention. They're definitely the cool capital uh, expenditure. And if we all had our druthers, we'd have brand new high-speed six-packs everywhere, of course. But they're extremely expensive. The supply chain, as well you know, documented uh, this year, has been incredibly hard and, and arduous. And a lot of resorts have been late on their lifts. So it's desirable for us to put in some new lifts here and there. But there's a lot of uh, other needs that are more acute, to be honest, for us to achieve stability and profitability as a company. And so we're not going to engage in the CapEx arms race carelessly. It's not, it's not something Pacific Group's going to do. The size, the structure, the culture of our company, the objectives are going to require a lot of discipline um, and execution. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, as I said, a lot of our resorts have come to us as distressed properties that hadn't seen maintenance capital over the last several years. So, so a lot of what we're doing is sort of these behind the scenes investments, improving the snowmaking systems, fixing the pipeline, adding snowmaking guns to improve those, buying new snowcats and, and getting those into rotation and, and fixing all those things that and may not have been dealt with for many years. So that's kind of square one. And, and it does absorb a lot of the capital, quite frankly. So we're, we're going to take a careful approach to this. We're very mindful as a company, but we recognize that some, there's some of these lifts in our priority that have high priorities that need to be fixed. And we're going to have to get those in the pipeline. So you mentioned the West End double at Powderhorn as a high priority. And looking around the portfolio, Wintergreen, he's got two six packs. It seems like that's a fairly modern fleet that even that fixed grip quad on Acorn is pretty new. Wisp, I see it around there. The the lifts are in good shape and not that old. Mount Washington Alpine seems pretty new. Jay has some needs. Uh, Ragged has really a great lift fleet. Are there any other lifts you can point to as as high a priority as that West End double at Powderhorn? Or or would you say that's your top priority right now? I'd say that's probably our top priority right now. But I think, you know, you mentioned that, you know, there's there's certainly some at at Jay that uh, we'll have to look at over time. And I think Wisp would probably be next up in terms of the need uh, there. Just, you know, it's a busy place and we'd love to have some new lifts there as well at some point in time. Any specific thinking around WISP, maybe that double triple on the front side as your out of base mover? What, what what do you, when you look around there, what do you like for priorities? The double triple is actually pretty efficient and you're talking 700 vertical too. So it's not the biggest vertical in our portfolio, but there's actually another lift that would probably see a replacement prior to that. The double triple is actually serves more like the hotel guests and the day visitors. We see another opportunity for them to access the mountain. So more to come, you know, it's, but this is all longer plan, longer term. Plan. Is chair one, maybe the bigger priority for you then? I think so. Okay. All right. Let's finish up today, Christian, with a discussion of Jay Peak. So as, uh, as everyone knows, 
And as you said, it was sort of your coming out party. PJRI successfully won the auction to purchase Jay Peak from the court-appointed receiver after a kind of six years in limbo last fall. Pacific Group Resorts' initial bid was $58 million. The final price was $76 million. Take us into the room on the day of the auction, Christian. What was that day like? What was the energy like? And how was the team reacting as the price continued to creep up from $58 million to $76 million? Yeah, I think Steve Wright and I would have very similar discussion from that day. We were both rece- we were both receiving intel from in the auction room. We uh, neither of us were in the room um, at the time, you know. So we were getting the updates, and and uh, it was it was nerve wracking, quite frankly, um, to be part of it. It was exciting, you know. And ultimately, we did prevail in in acquiring the resort. It was definitely something we wanted to make happen. As I said before, this is an understated company. You know, there's not you know, we're very practical and, you know, there wasn't a wild celebration or anything like that. It, you know, it was, there was some relief, but honestly it was kind of business as usual. Like we got work to do, we got to get to work, you know, now what's next, you know? And so I think the price going from 58 million, which we, we never, you know, it would have been great if we'd gotten it for 58 million, but I don't think that was probably in the cards, you know, in 76 was maybe a little more than we would have preferred to pay, but, it, you know, but in the end it's, it's an incredible asset, you know, and it was a really good acquisition for our company. And the delta between the 58 and the 76 really is the difference between an opening and winning bid. And, and we're going to have to double down on our efforts uh, to maximize the potential there. And that's, uh, that's the mandate. And uh, that's what we're focused on right now. And, and we think it's achievable. We've all seen what happens when receivership goes wrong. And Tamarack was the victim of a receiver who decided to just shut down the resort. And Michael Goldberg made the decision to keep Jay Peak and Sister Resort Burke open. And it was the right decision, but you also needed the right people in place to run those properties. So what can you tell us, Christian, about the job that Steve Wright and his team did to not only keep Jay afloat for six years, but actually turn it into a successful business? And in during one of the most challenging times we've ever had, which with not only coincided with the COVID shutdowns and restrictions, but the closing of the U.S.-Canada border for basically two seasons, which took away half of Jay's historic visitor base. So just how good of a job did they do and and how important was that to keeping Jay afloat? They did an incredible job. It's been well documented by yourself and others in the industry. You know, the entire JP team led by Steve, right, has been exceptional in their commitment and willingness and resilience and perseverance, quite frankly. You know, I mean, to first be faced with a receivership and just sort of the unknown and whether the resort was going to be shut down or not or what was going to happen, it was all out there. And then they get slammed with COVID and they were disproportionately impacted by COVID because of the border closure. So it's been one challenge after another. This team is whether they're pressure tested and, uh, and quite frankly, they've succeeded in an amazing way, considering how challenging the whole situation has been for them. I think there's a lot of relief to have be through that. And on the other side of it, you know, we're really excited and, and have enjoyed spending time and interacting with the team there, you know, and it's just been, it's been fun to see what's happened and how they've been able to successfully navigate this. And uh, we're really excited. And we think that, you know, there's a ton of potential there at Jay. So they were, they did it for six years. They kept the place going. They turned it into a great business. However, when you're in receivership, you don't get all of the resources that you necessarily would want. So now that the adrenaline's worn off here, Christian, you've had four months of owning J Peak. What's your assessment 
honestly, of what's working really well at Jay and where do you need to or want to focus resources in the coming years? Yeah, I think there's far more things working at Jay than are not working, quite frankly. I think you feel the culture there, the vibe, you know, they've done such a strong job in building their brand uh, and making it kind of just authentic through and through, you know, from their email correspondence to their customers to, you know, just everything that they do, their customer touch points, their unique marketing uh, and communications and advertising, everything they do, you know? And so I think there's a lot of really good things that work there. It's unmistakably Eastern. It's big. Uh, the skiing is very good. It's cold. We know, you know, we know that. And again, we think there's a ton of potential there as they get onboarded and become part of our family. So you really bought the whole resort. Jay has all kinds of stuff, hotels and condos and water parks. And I don't have the exact inventory in front of me of what you ended up with and what you didn't. I don't think you had a choice in that. I think the receiver was selling the whole package. Long term, does that make sense? Does Pacific Group Resorts want to own just the ski area or do you like having all that other stuff that came with it? Uh, we like having all this stuff. It's 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 a win, you know. I think you know there's some resort operators that might shy away from from having that stuff, but you know we at Wintergreen there's a lot of correlations there. We own and operate a lot of the facilities there, so it's not foreign to us. You know all those facilities that have been built and developed at Jay over the time, they all interact and support each other. You know, I mean, just think about a few weeks ago or a month ago when they had you know the minus fifty wind chill episode where the resorts in the east shut down for the most part for a day or two. And lo and behold, the indoor water park was packed. Those folks were in there and, and they were enjoying their time and their vacation. And they were in the clips and reels and watching movies and cl- on the climbing wall and the food and beverage outlets were hammering, you know, and so it really is a holistic offering at Jay and it all works together. So long-term, the request I hear most from season pass holders is they want a new Bonaventure quad. It's not a super old lift. It dates to 1987. It is not, however, historically very reliable, and it's been responsible for multi-day outages in the recent past. What's your thinking around a Bonaventure quad replacement and how that ranks with, say, the West End quad at Powderhorn for priorities for PGRI? Yeah, I think season pass holders are usually pretty well informed, you know, and accurate in their perception. And, and that's probably the case at JP as well. Both of the lifts in the, you know, in the snowmaking system are priorities, um, but how, you know, but how and when they get addressed is going to be nuanced, right? You know, and you've got a lot of issues, right? You got cost, you know, like we talked about, you know, another $8 million fix, you know, here, and then another couple million here. And, you know, and then you've got the permitting issues as well. You've got to work through that in the capital cycle and the lift replacement cycle. The snowmaking system itself is going to require, it's going to need to be improved or there's going to have to be another water source. Um, So additional water storage and more firepower is paramount to, to getting that system going. So, you know, it's a complex web, you know, to kind of work through. It's going to take time. I think season pass holders, don't see the behind the scenes capital sometimes that, you know, you and I were just talking about, right? There's systems that need to be put in place, payroll, accounting, ERP systems, you know, there's deferred maintenance, you know, the receivership wasn't spending a ton of money on maintenance capital. The hotels haven't had significant investments since they were built and are going to need attention, you know, and some renovation and modernization. Parking is another one, right? Parking is this massive issue in our industry, you know, and it can create a bad experience at the resort if, if you don't fix that. 
uh, employee housing is another priority. So, so there, there's a lot of work to do. The costs are extraordinary. So it's going to require some time, some patience, um, and some discipline. All right, Christian, last question for you here today, because I have to ask, now that you have six ski areas, everyone's asking already, what's next? Will PGRI buy more ski areas? And if so, is there a region you like? You're based in Utah. You don't have a ski area there. Not that there's many there or many for sale, but but do you want? Do you think that the company will buy more ski areas? And is, is there any sort of thinking around what those may be? You know, absolutely. The answer is yes. You know, we, we definitely are always mindful and looking forward to acquisitions. You know, I think the vision for the company is to grow organically and through acquisition, right? And, but it's impossible to say kind of when that next acquisition is going to happen, right? These, these opportunities are few and far between. You know, we look at a lot of properties, um, but the reality is there's very few that are a good fit for our company or in an even smaller number that are actual opportunities or possibilities that we would be able to acquire, right? And there's a lot of competition in that space too. You know, certainly from a geographics perspective, I think, you know, we'd love to have more in the Rocky Mountain West, you know, add to other regions around the country that makes sense. And, um, you know, even here in Utah, of course, would be, would be cool. But, you know, resorts, you know, they, they, don't, they don't come for sale too often. There's not a lot of JPEGs out there to acquire. So we're going to be diligent. We're going to be careful and, you know, make sure that we're doing the right thing and finding the right resort that's going to fit in our portfolio in the future. So I, I, I like Christian. One more question for you. And I, it's because I want to give you an opportunity to address a common social media narrative. And, and I, I, I want to be careful about not giving internet bozos too much run or too much credibility here. But there is a, a narrative that's caught on. And, and I don't know what the genesis is of it that PGRI is tapped out now that you bought J. And, and what they mean by that is there isn't capital left for, you know, forget about buying another resort to invest in the resorts that you do have. So, so I want to give you a chance to address that and center us here on the financial position of Pacific Group and your commitment to continually investing in the properties that you do have and improving them. The internet can say a lot of things, right? And people are very opinionated, seasoned pass holders. They are loyal. They, they feel an ownership almost in a resort, right? And I think that, you know, just we should just slap up you know, new lifts everywhere and all that. Unfortunately, that's not possible. And kind of what we were talking about before, you know, you've got all these behind the scenes CapEx improvements that need uh, to happen. We monitor what other resort companies and operators in this industry are spending as a percentage of revenue. On CapEx, we're right there. You could argue that with a JPEG and what it brings to the table in terms of profitability, that there will be resources to continue to invest, you know, but we also have to be equitable across our portfolio. We can't put all the money into one one resort, if you will. And we've got to be judicious in how we do that. And we've got to prioritize and uh, and take a take a careful approach to it. So, All right, Christian, with that, I really will let you go. I cannot thank you enough for sharing your time and insight today. This is a really, really exciting time for Pacific Group Resorts. And I'm really looking forward to how the company evolves, both Mission Affordable and its resorts into the future. So thank you so much for that, Christian. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stuart. I appreciate the time that you took to put into this uh, interview. You do your homework very thoroughly, and we appreciate what you're doing for the industry and how you're helping the narrative of, of what resort operators are doing out there. And it's been great to watch, and we're excited to see where you take it. Well, thanks so much for that, Christian. I appreciate it. That's Christian Knapp. 
Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of Pacific Group Resorts. That was great, Christian. I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much for the time and the insight. And thank you all for listening. You can expect to hear a whole lot more from that company in the future, both on this podcast and in the newsletter and frankly, just in general in the ski talk world. It is hard to overstate how huge that J acquisition was BGRI and how much that instantly recalibrated that entire company's trajectory. Very happy to see BGRI end up with Jay and really anxious to see where they take both that ski resort and the company as a whole. More pods coming all the time. I promised Whitefish next, but I had to move PGRI to the front of the line. You will understand why soon enough. Then you will hear from the leaders of Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Banff, Sun Peaks, Stevens Pass, Dartmouth Skiway, China Peak, and Timberline, West Virginia. Sadly, we did have to cancel the Whistler podcast as their top executive, Jeff Buchheister, has moved on to a new position as CEO of Aspen Skiing Company. So awesome for him, and I am nothing but stoked for that move. And I will catch up with Jeff at Aspen, I am certain. In the meantime, we are going to have to come back to Whistler once Vale figures out who's going to run the joint and once that person gets some time to settle in. Before you go, a reminder that the best way to get new episodes of the Storm Skiing Podcast as soon as they are live is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.